Now it's a one-minute warning. How you doing up there? teaching. All right. It's nine o'clock by my, my phone. That's, that's the one I'll be using. That one's actually a minute ahead. So let's open with a little prayer and we'll get going. Lord, thank you for the facility that we have. Thank you for the weather. Thank you for the opportunity to come here uh, together in fellowship and study your word. And uh, participate later today in uh, the Lord's Supper. Um, Amen. Okay, so we're going to be talking about Hebrews for the next eight weeks. Um, Today will be kind of uh, some introduction on the book. I recommend that you guys read it on your own. Um, If you have time, I know, you know, if you're... If you're participating in other Bible studies or if you're following along with other students, I know sometimes fitting a whole other book in can be a problem, but it is a quick read. It actually isn't very long, even though it's like 13 or 14 chapters. The chapters are fairly small. Um, It can seem like an intimidating book thematically or theologically because of what it's covering. Uh, That's one of the reasons why I wanted to kind of go over it for the next eight weeks. So it'll be about seven, I can't, obviously I can't do a verse by verse in eight weeks on a book like Hebrews. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to cover kind of like the, the, say, some of the bigger portions as far as the weightier portions in the book. Um, today we'll kind of, what I'll do is kind of set the stage as far as the, the, how, the, how the author lays out his discussion, kind of set the context, do some observations. So when we get to those more weightier portions of the book, Uh, you'll have a little more context because we'll end up having to skip something. And then when we get to the last week, um, I'll try to save the last week basically for cleanup. So anything I don't get to that maybe you find interesting in the book, uh, we can talk about that in the the last week. Uh, Because there's quite a bit in here uh, as far as um, theology and, say, questions and debates that have raged over the last 2,000 years regarding this book. Now, we'll definitely hit some of the big ones. For example, in chapter 6, right, if you turn to chapter 6, this might be maybe the most hotly debated portion of the book. Uh, I know when I was an early Christian in my early years, uh, I remember having debates with guys uh, about this particular passage and I did not know what to do with it, right? So I, and I had a, say, a, um, a, uh, a theological parentage that was given to me by my parents. So that was the best thing I knew how to come up with. Uh, so you could say on this, I've held four positions on this, this passage right here. Um, when we get there, I'll give you my current, current position. But I've changed my position multiple times on that, okay? Um, we'll cover the Hall of Faith, right? So the book of Hebrews is... Maybe most famous within Christian circles for uh, chapter eleven, right? The hall, the hall of faith, and 
you know, this comes, you know, this is um, fodder for pillow art, right? The Hall of Faith. A lot of this stuff ends up on, uh, you know, stuff that gets hung up on the walls or on your pillow or on a little cozy that maybe you you put a teapot on. um, Because really, the verses taken on their own are, say, inspirational, right? I'm not going to deny that. When you have a guy, uh, when you have uh, martyrs of the faith, powerful people of the faith, when they get talked about here in Hebrews, um, in the way they get talked about, it's motivational, it's inspirational. You're like, I want to be. That's what I want to be like, right? But we're going to try to look at it in the context. You know, uh, Paul, or the author, didn't just go, you know what would be a good idea right now? Is talk about all the, all the big league players who have, who have done the best for, for Christianity, right? That, or not Christianity, but, uh, you know, in, for God and for God's faith, right? He didn't just decide there's a reason why it's here, why it's where it's at, and we're, we're going to talk about that. Um, and, there, and some others we'll get to. Any questions, by the way? Um, I'll try to stop and pause and ask for questions because sometimes I can just blast right through. So the last year, I did a kind of brief introduction or overview to the book. And I'm going to repeat some of it. So if you're here, if you remember, it might seem a little repetitious. Uh, But I'm starting, you know, I'm doing a full study here. So I want to make sure I hit some of the some of the main points again. And Hebrews was written somewhere around 62 AD. Um, and that's kind of standard for a lot of the, a lot of the, a lot of the books. Um, you have some of the New Testament books. What's the, what's the earliest New Testament book? Anybody, anybody know? I guess there's one or two that's really kind of up for debate as the first book written. James is one of them, and the other one, Mark. Yeah, so right around 50 AD. Okay, so up until that point, that means everything was oral tradition. So until James and those guys started writing down, and particularly Luke, where he, remember he goes out and he's like, he's talking to all these witnesses. What is Luke doing? Luke is collecting the oral tradition. Okay, um, it's all oral tradition. Now, it's interesting and important Something else, and I, and I, I, I think it was Vince, it was either you or it was Dwight that talked about it last week, or maybe it was two weeks ago, um, because this was on my mind, and so this is sticking out. There is another very important event, besides the beginning of the canon, there was another very important event that took place in 50 AD that's relevant to the discussion here in Hebrews. Is anybody? So instead of being written down, uh, it was, you would tell, you basically sit by a campfire or whatever and tell somebody what you heard. No, no, and actually oral tradition, uh, for the most part, oral tradition was given significantly more respect than written tradition at that particular point in history. Because anybody can write anything and then it, once it gets, you know, a thousand miles away from its original, where it was originally written, there's, no, there's nobody there to provide any additional context to what's being said. Whereas if you know the story and you say it, especially if you're a witness, you can provide additional context. Um, so that's not, a, that's not a dumb question. So something happened in 50 AD. Now, well, you can't answer. 
you probably, you probably, Kate? It was the Jerusalem Council, right? So, and what was the Jerusalem Council about? Not you, Kate, somebody else. Good job. Yeah. What the Gentiles. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the Gentiles were making. So the chapter opens up. Judaizers came down. Right. And um, they were con- they were convincing the other Jews to hold to a position that Gentiles were required to do what? As part in order to be fully right. And, and a little more than that. They're also circumcision. Obviously, that's a big one. What else were they supposed to do? They were supposed to follow the law. Right? And that's in um, Acts chapter, what, 12, 14? What's that? 15. 15. Thank you. And Paul is a part of this discussion. Apollos is a part of this discussion. Peter is there. James are there. And James is basically, you know, he's the, the elder of the church in Jerusalem. And he basically makes the final proclamation, right? So, and, and I always think that's interesting, too, because you have Paul and Peter who are both, you know, monoliths in the early Christian church. And even given, it kind of says something about the structure of authority that's being laid out in the early church where they're like, okay, basically, they defer to James, James's proclamation on the issue. Um, but Peter and Paul... And James, they all make an interesting comment to the Jews about whether or not, and this is before James's proclamation, whether or not the Gentiles are required to circumcise and follow the law. What was that? What was that proclamation? Other than my dad or Kate? Was that? Well, no, they were saying something to the Jews. They said to to the Jews, they're like, so you want the Gentiles to do this? But, right, like you want the Gentiles to do this, but you haven't been able to do this, right? You can't do this, so why would you put that burden on the Gentiles? And so the the um, the conclusion of the matter was that what became James's proclamation is he says the conclusion of the matter is okay. So this is what we'll do. the Gentiles, they don't have to follow the law. They don't have to get circumcised. But there should be a compromise. Okay? And that compromise is they can't eat meat sacrificed to idols. They can't eat meat that's still mingled with the blood. Uh, they can't eat meat that's been strangled. And they have to, um, which I always find uh, another interesting phrase, they have to refrain from fornication. Right? So this apparently was, must have been a problem. Right? And the, it was like, can we at least get them to stop having sex all over the place. Can that be one of the compromises? And so that's one of the compromises, okay? Is, uh, is what they eat, a, but only a small constraint on what they eat, but there is a constraint in the way um, they uh, interrelate intimately, okay? Now this is important, I think, for two reasons for the book of Hebrews. One, Paul is a big contributor to that whole thing, okay? Now as far as church tradition is concerned, the author, who the author of Hebrews is, it's split, right? Um, The Eastern church has had a tradition from the beginning that it is Paul. The Western church didn't pick up that tradition until right around 300 um, AD, which I just learned yesterday, by the way, that the city of York in England, right, 
was the capital of the Roman Empire two times during that same period, around 300 A.D. That's a little factoid. has nothing to do with this. But I just thought I'd share that. So there's uh, one of the reasons why, uh, say, Paul might be the, the Pauline authorship of Hebrews may be the most popular is because the, those, those two streams of church tradition, Eastern and Western churches, uh, and, and kind of more of a negative evidence, Paul's contribution, Paul's, say, involvement, um, the, the Hebrews were still a little upset because Paul, they figured if there was anybody that would be on their side, it would be Paul because Paul was a, a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? Trained by the, the greatest Kung Fu uh, masters at the time. And so they figured he would be on their side, and he wasn't, right? And so some, of the, some consider that, well, maybe the reason why, one of the reasons why Paul does not include his name like he does in all, at the beginning of all his other letters is because, well, his name is still kind of uh, mud in this area. And so he's like, okay, so I'm, gonna, I'm not going to put my name on here because there's actually something more important that we need to deal with, right? So he doesn't... Generally, I think the consensus is that part of the reason why Paul puts his name, and he always says Paul, an apostle of Christ, is because he is adding authority to what he is saying, whereas in this case, it might actually take away from what he is saying. It might get in the way of what he is saying, and we also know from Paul's other writings that he, his biggest concern is the going forward of the gospel. He says, I am all things to all people for the sake of the gospel, right? So the, he, the, you know, the, the popular view with Pauline Authorship has to do with that. Now, Apollos and Barnabas are other, um, say, candidates, and I think the list may even go longer. Especially, you know, if you if your Bibles have introductions, most of them will give you the full list of potential authors. But I'm just going to go with Paul because it's easier. Paul's easier to say than all the other names, and um, I like I like Paul. He's already made a big contribution to the New Testament. I th- and I actually think it's Paul, but you know, I'm I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. And so although I say Paul, um, from here on out, I might sometimes I might throw in just the author. I'm not, I don't want to have to catch myself every time. So right around 62 AD, Paul writes. All right, so in 50 AD, you have the Jerusalem Council. It's written around 68, 62 AD. He doesn't put his name on it to kind of you know, make sure he's not creating any obstacles to the understanding of the content. Okay, and now we kind of get to the purpose of the book. Now, the, um, the Jerusalem Council does give us, once you read the book, you get, okay, so I get some of the tension that's going on that Paul is dealing with in the book, okay? But there's something else. There's another event really important event, maybe the most important event in early church history after the founding of the church, right, that takes place that is related to the content of this book. Not given any clues yet. 70 AD. What happens in 70 AD? The temple is destroyed. And I actually had underlined some stuff from Josephus in my Josephus book, and I didn't bring it. Um, I was going to read some, a little bit of the passages to you. But according to Josephus, okay, if you read the passage in the Wars of the Jews, if I remember, it's like uh, book six, somewhere in there. It's in the back. You just look up uh, Temple Destruction by Titus, right? And according to Josephus, um, 
Titus tried to stop the destruction of the temple, but his soldiers were just too rambunctious. And uh, they, all, they ran in and lit it on fire because they weren't particularly happy with the Jews. Okay? Now, the, the temple, uh, for us New Testament scholars, kind of really serves as, um, as, as kind of a point of history that covers two important elements in New Testament discussion, or that would be important for the New Testament. So it's, what are those, I'm trying not to, I'm trying to ask the question without giving away the answer, so I, I, that's kind of a clumsy question, but what do we think those two, you've already, you've already answered, what do we think, you've already answered a question. Somebody else who hasn't answered, two, sacrifice, well you've already, you thanks Vince, always stepping on it, right? Sacrificial system, what's the other one? This is, this, is, this is a huge one, especially in, uh, this is a huge one, especially in any uh, premillennial church. I guess it's, it's, it doesn't matter whether you're, I'll give you another hint, you've already answered. Whether it doesn't matter if you're a preterist, it doesn't matter if you're a preterist or a futurist, this is still a big deal. It has to do with the destruction of the temple. So the, the, there's a, 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 so the destruction of the temple covers two things. One, the elimination of the sacrificial system, but it covers something else in the New Testament. What is that? It's connected to. It's, uh, it's related to another big thing, another big issue in the New Testament. Uh, maybe. If you're a preterist, for sure. Christ's second. She said Christ's second coming. Okay, so um, there's a prophecy that we're going to get to in Matthew chapter 24, right? All that discourse. What did Jesus say? Right, right up, right before he gets asked by the disciples, when are these things going to happen? What, what did Jesus just say? He said the temple was going to get destroyed, right? So the destruction of the temple it doesn't just end the sacrificial system. It's a, it is a fulfillment of a pretty big prophecy in the New Testament, right? And the events of 70 AD, the destruction, so not just the, um, uh, not just the destruction of the temple, but say the invasion of Jerusalem by Titus and his armies is a big deal, right? Now it is a big deal to the Jews because now they can't participate in the sacrificial system. If they can't participate in the sacrificial system, what does that mean as a whole? They have no means to cover their sins. They have no means to cover their sins and they can't fulfill, they can't complete, they can't keep complete the, law. the law, right? So the sacrificial system is a small part of the law. I mean, theologically, it's a big part of the law, but as far as like uh, just elements, right? You got what, 613 laws that they have to keep. And if you can't keep one, guess what you can't keep? You can't keep them all, right? Yeah. So a great question, if you happen to witness to a Jew, is, is then how, how then do you account for your sins since you can no longer have the And Paul answers that question in this book. Well, I understand Paul answered it, but they don't buy it. <laughs> so the sacrificial system, with the, with the inability to participate in the sacrificial system, that means that any Jew, okay, is um, kind of 
their, their ship lost at sea, so to speak. Okay? And this is, this is true of Christian Jews at the time, too. Right? Because, as we've already seen, in 50 AD, Christian Jews okay, still have, say, uh, the theological trappings of the law, and they weren't seeing it quite right. right? So they weren't seeing the use of the law, the purpose, the meaning of the And it, it's like, I get it as much as a Gentile 2,000 years removed can get it, right? I get the idea of the, the I don't mean I'm going to say burden, but the, the unwillingness to let go of the traditions of your father that are 1,500 years old. And in the, in the particular case of the Jews, right, 400 years ago, they were in exile because they weren't fulfilling the law, right? So one of the issues that that were essentially dealt with as much as you could deal with the issue in the human heart is the issue of idolatry, right? So the Jews had an issue with idolatry um, and they weren't fulfilling the law and they weren't putting away the idols from amongst themselves. So they go into exile, at least the southern tribes, right? The northern tribes are totally wiped out. The southern tribes go into exile for 70 years uh, to fulfill the rest years, right? That the land was supposed to get. So they were supposed to give the land rest years. They never did. They just kept growing. And God's like, I am now going to punish you. So I'm going to add up all those rest years that you should have had. So over the 490 years that they weren't given the rest years, you're getting 70 years in subjugation in Babylon. And when they come out of that and they rebuild the temple, right, they, they really do put out, put away the idols that were amongst them. But in humans being humans, we've got to have some kind of idol in our heart, right, I suppose, um, and in, re- in replacing of the, say, the small physical idols that they had, they replaced it with the law, right? So when Jesus shows up, that law then kind of becomes an obstacle to some Jews, because he eventually gets murdered for it, right? Overseeing who he really is. Okay, so they, I get, like, the Jews who, who do, can, say, uh, follow Christ... Still not sure what to do with the like. What do I do with this, right? Because I, I believe in Christ, or you know, I, I see who Christ is. I get what you're saying, Mister, uh, you know, gospel preacher. But I, I can't just abandon this after everything that has happened, right? Fifteen hundred years of building of tradition, um, you know, and the reason why my forefathers went to exile is because they abandoned it, right? I don't know what to do. Uh, and so what do you do? Well, it's, it, it, you might say, it's, what's it going to hurt? I think it might just be safer if I just hang on to the law. Okay? And so I'll hang on to the law, and I'll hang on to Jesus. Okay? And that's where we come to, to the very beginning of the book, is Paul is dealing, I think, with that idea. I'm going to hang on to the law, and I'm going to hang on to the Jesus. And he comes out of the gates just guns blazing, I think, which one of the best openings in the New Testament. Um, I put it up there with, uh, this, is, this is John, you know, 1, 1 through 14 opening, right? Uh, this, this is Paul coming out. He's coming out hot, right? It's like, he likes, Paul likes to use uh, athletic, um, you know, analogies in his writing, so I'll use one. Like, he is, he is a fighter coming out of his corner, ready to win the fight this round right now. He's like Mike Tyson tearing through the fall his first round opponents, right? And so I'm going to read to you the opening of Hebrews 
uh, chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 1 through 4. It says, after, and I'm reading from the New English Translation, so it might sound a little bit different. But so if, if it's weird, you can just kind of listen to my, listen to my voice. After God spoke long ago in various portions and in various ways to our ancestors through the prophets, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he created the world. The Son is the radiance of his glory and the representation of his essence, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. And so when he had accomplished cleansing for sins, he sat down on the right hand of majesty on high. Thus he became so far better than the angels as he has inherited a name to, uh, superior to theirs. Okay? So the Jews have an issue with the law. They can't let it go. Right? It is a part of their lives. We can be, I think, um, sympathetic to that. Like, I get it. And Paul's, Paul is setting the stage for the rest of the book where he is about to tear them loose from the law. And it's important that this happens on an individual basis, but it's important that this gets done because in eight years, because this is 62 AD roughly when, the, when this was written, in eight years the temple's gone, and they're not going to be able to do anything about fulfilling the law anyways. So they need a replacement, so to speak, right? They need whatever void gets created by the destruction of the temple needs to be filled. And there's only one thing that, is, that can fill this void properly, Right? And, I don't, and I, when I say void, I don't mean like a whole Jesus-sized hole in your heart. Right? They have this thing that they've been dealing with for historically for 1,500 plus years. Right? When it's gone, it just, you know, it's not like flipping a switch. Like, oh, okay, I guess I'm good. The temple's gone. Whatever. What's next? Right? No. They need something, and that something is Christ. Right? And so Paul is going to make his argument. It's a, it's a contrast argument. Okay? That you have on one side the law and on the other side Christ. The two are not to be mixed. This is his argument. And the reason why the two are not to be mixed is because the law, by comparison to Christ, is no good. Right? The law could never do what it is you are expecting Christ to do. And if that is what you want, right, the cleansing of sins, if that is what you're really looking for, you have to let go of the law because what it actually is, is it's, an, it's an impediment to you fully embracing Christ. It's an impediment to you holding fast to your faith. It's an impediment to you growing in Christ. This is what, you know, I'm summarizing, but this is what Paul is saying through the rest of the book. And what he does is he uses elements. Um, in, in, there's no reference back to Christ's prophecy about the destruction of the temple. There's no additional prophecy about the destruction of the temple in this book, right? So he's not, you know, I don't, just so you know, by the way, you're not going to need this because remember Christ said this, right? Or because I now have a new prophecy, the temple's going to be, sorry, like that doesn't take place in this book, right? But um, he does talk about temple elements in the book. Right, so he talks about uh, uh, the priesthood 27 times. He brings up the priesthood. Okay, he talks about um, uh, the tabernacle. Right, so he uses he uses various words for the temple. He never uses 
the word temple, he uses various, say, synonymous words for the temple, such as uh, sanctuary, tabernacle, tent, holy place, and holy of holy, right? So he uses all these, uh, I think, up to like 20-something times when you combine uh, those, the uses of those words. And he'll use those words both in connection to uh, Moses and the law and in connection to Jesus and faith, right? So what you end up having in this book is you have um, two people, two primary individuals in the book of Hebrews, on one side, and both representing something different. So on one side, you have Moses, who represents the law, and on the other side, you have Jesus, who represents faith, grace, and, most importantly, the cleansing of sins, right? The law doesn't represent the cleansing of sins, and both of these are actually placed under the rubric of God's house. Okay, that's in chapter 2. So under, might even be chapter 3. Yeah, uh, chapter 3. So under the rubric of God's house, you have Moses and you have Jesus. Okay, and, this, and Paul's talking about these two men as represent, later on as representations of the law and of, of grace and, most, more importantly, the cleansing of sins, right? The, the thing that the law uh, was um, done as, say, as a rote element, but it never actually completed, right? The cleansing of sins. This is what Christ does. Um, and so as we move through the book, Paul understands that, that since there is a hole there, so to speak, there's going to, it's going to be replaced by, say, equivalent elements, right? So the temple on earth, it, even though he never says it's getting destroyed, it will be replaced by a temple in the heavens that is not built by human hands, right? The priesthood, well, if there's no sacrificial system, guess what you don't need? You don't need the priesthood, because that really was their primary role, right? Um, so if the priesthood's going away, okay, it, gets also, it also gets replaced by a new priesthood. Trivia, what's the new priesthood? I know some of you know. If you, it doesn't matter if you've answered a question. What's the new priesthood, Dad? Now, what's the new? In Hebrews, what's the new? Uh, that's not an incorrect answer, but it's the wrong answer for this book. What's... <laughs> What's the what's the new pri- what's the new priesthood? Say that again. Melchizedek. I, I, I will have problems saying that word, even though it sounded like I said it were uh, properly. I will have problems. So instead of the Levite priesthood, now it's the Melchizedekian priesthood, right? So instead of uh, a priesthood who has to make sacrifices every day, right? And Paul raises the question in the middle of the book. Well, you know. If it worked, why do you have to do it every day? Christ, who is a minister or he's a high priest in the, the form of Melchizedekian priesthood, he makes one sacrifice, right? One sacrifice that actually works. And, and this is what Paul is saying here in verse 3, um, right towards the end of the verse 3. And so when he accomplished the cleansing of sins, right? And he doesn't get to sit down at the right hand until the work is done, right? Because that's when you that's when you sit down, right? You sit down when your work is done. I mean, symbolically, you sit. I mean, some of us sit down where we're like, I don't feel like working. I'm going to sit down, right? Um, but what is is and I, I, this is a a the answer to this question is also in Hebrews, right? But what is it? 
sometimes also called when you sit down. Rest, right? Hebrews deals with the rest of God, right? So Christ here, right? So all, all the elements that, Hebrew, that Paul is going to expand on are introduced here, I think, at the beginning in this, this kind of beautiful way where basically says Christ is preeminent, right? I'm summarizing Max words, right? Christ is preeminent, and he's preeminent in a way where it matters to somebody who is not sure what to do with the law or who, who still has a deep attachment to the law. And that deep attachment has to be severed because it's creating problems, right? And so you're not severing this attachment to the law for nothing, right? You're severing this attachment to the law for something better than the law, right? That God, right? If you consider yourself a descendant of Moses or say an adherence to Moses and in, you know, symbolically you know, representation of the law, right? If when you switch over to Jesus, right? So if, over here into chapter three, um, verse two, chapter three, who is faithful to the one who appointed him as Moses, who is also in God's house, right? You're still in God's house when you go from Moses to Jesus. You are not abandoning the faith of your fathers, right? You're not abandoning the faith of your fathers. And uh, how might Paul make that clear later on in the book? If you're not, you're not abandoning the faith of your fathers. Where, where might that be pretty clear? Chapter 11, right? So chapter 11 now comes into this idea of faith, but it's connected to, like, look, you are not abandoning your fathers when you abandon the law. You're actually moving to a better place where all these faith heroes, they've already been there. They're already there. Right? That's why they're heroes of the faith. Because they already, you know, they can only do what, um, what they had that had been revealed with them at the time. Right? We get that. But Paul is saying, like, they were, they were um, uh, faithful to the revelation that had been given to them at the time. Right? So, when was Abraham considered righteous? When he believed God. Right? When he believed God specifically about Isaac, right? But he was considered righteous when he believed God, okay? And so the Jews are not giving up and abandoning their fathers when they move to, when they say, fully embrace Christ and give the law the Heisman, right? The stiff arm. That's not what they're doing. Because he says, like, look at all of these heroes that I know you place on a pedestal, right? Because of their faith. And Moses is one of them. Right? Moses might actually have the largest section, if I remember correctly. Okay? Uh, so you are actually moving into a better spot in relation to the fathers that you're concerned about leaving behind, the traditions that you're concerned about leaving behind. You're actually moving to a better spot. Yes?
Yeah, and that's a, that's a good point. Yeah, because Paul does make, he makes that point later in the book. He, he doesn't just say, like, he doesn't say Christ, Christ is not an, an alternative like we think of when we say, you know, uh, Burger King or McDonald's or whatever. He's, he's not an alternative, right? Uh, he, is, he is a fulfillment of the law. So that would be another element of you're not, you're not just abandoning the law, you're moving to a better place when you accept Christ because he fulfills the law, all elements of the law, and through him, if I understand what you're saying, like through him because of what was said in Matthew, if you, if you, if you keep the law, the love of God, love your neighbors, you've kept the whole law, right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, here you go. Here you go. That's a good term. Law debt. Yeah. Yeah. And that's an important concept. That is an important concept uh, that Paul covers because when we get to chapter 6, when we deal with some, one of the more, say, I don't know how hotly debated it is, but it has been debated for quite some time. Um, we get to chapter 6, that idea of, of um, the Christ fulfillment, the, the lack of law debt, those, those are good concepts to keep in mind. Thank you. So that, I think that brings us, let me check my time. That brings us to what I think the purpose of the book is. And when, when I say I think, you know, this is not um, out of left field. I don't know if this will say, so it might say this in some of your books. To some, de- to some degree, it'll be written like this. But, you know, um, other study materials that you might, uh, say, pursue. If you're going to take a look at Hebrews on your own, we'll say something along these lines. That the purpose of... Hebrews is to prepare the Jews for the destruction of the temple and the elimination of their ability to um, fulfill the law in that way. And so if they're going to be prepared for it, they have to understand how Christ fulfills the law. And they have to understand it in a Jewish way, right? This was not an obstacle that the Gentiles ever really had. When, 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 When Paul, as a you know, an apostle or an evangelist to the Gentiles. This was not an, they had other obstacles, right? But this really wasn't one that they had. And so this is an obstacle to, uh, you might say, Jews who are considering conversion. They're like considering Christ, right? Or to Jews who are, have already, uh, say, converted to Christ or, you know, placed their faith in Christ. Uh, the struggles that they're going to have to go through. And so what he is doing is he is laying out, say, a theological framework or theological understanding of Christ's relationship to the law, in particular his, his cleansing of sins, why that matters, right, in contrast to the law, and his fulfillment of the law, why that matters in contrast to the, what, say, the purpose of the law. Maybe, maybe they had a, a, a slightly incorrect view of what they thought, thought the law existed, why they thought it existed, okay? Um, and, oh, and I think that's probably safe to say, right? Their, their view of the law was insufficient, right? They, they needed it to be updated. And Paul was updating it because, and he was doing this before the destruction of the temple, preparing them for that inevitable event. Even though he doesn't say um, the temple destruction is coming, right? He's still preparing them for that uh, inevitability. Any, any questions? We only got a only got a few minutes left. Any other comments 
on the book of Hebrews? No? Okay. So <clears throat> what we'll end up doing as we move through is, this is another reason why I think maybe some scholars think it's Paul. It's another reason why I think it's Paul. And Paul likes to write in, say, structured arguments, right? As opposed to, say, James. And we only have one book, so it's hard to develop a pattern with James. But, say, compared to James or, or John, where John is more kind of like free-flowing, um, Paul is very structured. And the book of Hebrews has, what, what would say, say, 14 arguments in the book of Hebrews. And they, build, they slowly build on each other. So there's 14 arguments through the book of Hebrews, and we're probably going to look at um, the book of Hebrews um, that way. Say, so what is the argument that Paul is making? Um, I mean, we've already discussed that, but he's going, to, he's going to start fleshing it out. And when, whenever you study Scripture, right, so as far as your Bible study methods, right, Bible study methods... You know, Bible study basically has three steps, right? What's the first step in Bible study? Observation. Observation. What's the second step? Interpretation. Interpretation. Third step? Application, Application right? So we're, we're going to spend most of our time in the observation stage. We're going to look at the arguments, okay? Um, but if you want to, I think, establish a good... Uh, level, good baseline, good uh, foundation for making interpretive claims, you should spend most of your time in observation. That means read the book, right? Um, don't read a passage and then go to a commentary. That's not observation, right? So read the book, read the book, read the book over and over and over. Go for a walk. Um, take your little Bible app. Most Bible apps now have, like, uh, you, can, you, can, you can listen to the book, right? So you have an audio so you can read the book, you can listen to the book, have the book read to you, right? Um, like, pick somebody, say, you will read the book to me, right? If you have kids, say, you need to learn how to read. Read this book to me, right? Read it out loud at least once, right? Get to, familiarization, get to know the book, okay? And when you're going through the observation step, Hebrews provides, not every uh, book provides the same level of opportunity for every way because different writers write different ways, right? But one of the things um, that Hebrews provides the opportunity is in the, when part of observation is analysis, right? You, you've collected all your data, so to speak, if you think of it like a, uh, like the scientific method, right? Because the literal historical grammatical method of Bible interpretation is closer to the, closer to the scientific method than it is to the an, analogous way of interpreting the Bible, where that would be more like looking at a, a painting and trying to figure out what it says, right? So you take your, you t you, everything you've read, you make your notes, you've underlined some stuff, you circled some words, and now you're going to do some analysis. Like, well, your analysis of the book, but there are four things that you can look for, okay? There's tonal shift. Like, like think of it as like if you're watching a, a, a comedy and all of a sudden it turns into horror, a horror, right? So that'd be like a shift in tone, right? There's tonal shift, there's repetition. Repetition's the easy one, right? Words, phrases, things that keep repeating, okay? Like, well, I've already covered a little bit. It's like, say, uh, a tabernacle, tent, holy of holies. Th these words are repeated a lot. And 
say the word rest is repeated a lot, but it's confined to a small area. So you actually see a tonal shift from before chapter 4 going into chapter 4 and leaving chapter 4. And part of that delimination is the repetition of the words of rest, right? But then you have juxtaposition and contrast. Now, contrast is the big one in this book. There's a lot of contrast. Contrast between Moses and Jesus, between the law and faith, between the Levitical priesthood and the Melchizedekian priesthood, between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Right? There, there is a lot of contrast in here. So if you want to flex your study muscles, go through this book and pull out the contrasts. And I think when you pull out the contrast, you'll begin to see maybe one of the more important things um, in Bible study as you go into the interpretation phase. And some people call it so like you're trying to pull out the, the theme, right? What, what, are the, what are the main themes of the book? Because that kind of starts feeding into, well, what does Paul mean when he says this in this particular area of the book? Okay? Because remember, he's talking to people who uh, had a particular culture 2,000 years ago in the Middle East and... I don't think any of us fit, check any of those boxes, right? So you're trying to determine the theme. Well, what Paul is making, okay, in this book, to some, to one degree, uh, is a, he's making a moral argument, right? And he, he's making a, a theological argument, which really is the theme. When you talk about themes, sometimes we might say, well, it's talking about the law, right? Well, that would be a topic, Right? So if you're, if you're trying to figure out what the theme of the book is and it's, you limit it to one word or two words, you've come up with a topic. And nothing wrong with trying to figure out, well, what are the topics the book is covering? That's great. But if you, you want to know what the themes are, you have to, you're basically entering into weighty moral territory. So if you read the book, this, this is your homework assignment if you choose to take it. Right? And you decide to read the book, okay? what do you think the themes are? Uh, that is, what do you think the weighty moral concepts in the book are. What moral argument is Paul making? Now, it should be obvious what it's going to end up being, as given my introduction and what we covered at the beginning of Hebrews. But try to write that out, right? Just the, the, um, the practice of trying to write that out, write it out in different ways. Well, I think, um, say, till the soil from when we get some of the more difficult spots in the book um, or say them, some of the more bandied about areas in the book. So I think that's time. Yep, that's time. Close the prayer. Lord, thank you again for the opportunity to come and uh, study this book of Hebrews. Um, Lord willing, we uh, will get through it. And I pray that it would uh, ultimately, the truths in this book, would we would be able to um, uh, take them into our heart and uh, understand who you are just a little bit better, understand who we are just a little bit better, and uh, live a life that is um, just a little bit more uh, glorifying to you. Amen.